individual spiritual houses are built, and we as a collective body together, the church, are built upon. And we will prevail because Jesus has already prevailed. This week we're looking more at the church will prevail, will prevail even more. So this week and next week, two things that we have to do as a church, must do as a church, have to come together and do as a church in order to invigorate us to prevail even more, to progress the kingdom of God, to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, however you want to say it, because all of the other things that we do, that's the main thing. Keep the main thing the main thing. We have to be doing things that, that make us and, in, and inspire us and compel us to share the gospel of Jesus because he is the one and only savior of mankind. He is our only hope. So that's what we're looking at. That's what we looked at last week. And now this week we will look at uh, when we do this and next week when we do something else. Uh, this week we're looking more at, a, at a, from a worship standpoint. So just a couple of quotes on, on music for some, some guys you may have heard of before. Johann Sebastian Bach, you may have heard of him. You may not listen to him, but uh, he's a, pretty much a musical genius. I listen to him when I want to help focus. I think it hurts my brain so much that it makes me focus on what I'm trying to do. It takes up so much bandwidth or something. But Bach said, All music should have no other end and aim than the glory of the soul's refreshment. Where this is not remembered, there is no real music but devilish hubbub. He always headed his compositions, J.J., Jesus Juba, which means Jesus help me. He always ended his compositions, SDG, which is sola de gratia, which means to God alone the praise. Martin Luther, like that Martin Luther, like 1500s Martin Luther started this Protestant thing that we now continue and are thankful for this, to this day, said this, Martin Luther said, the devil takes flight at the sound of music, just as he does words of theology. And for this reason, the prophets always combined theology and the teaching of truth and the chanting of psalms and hymns. After theology, I give the highest praise and greatest honor to music. Music is something that just speaks to us in a different way than really anything else does. Here's some things that, that Scripture says about song, just some, some random Scripture. Psalm 100, a psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Oh, Psalm 95, oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make noise to him with songs of praise. Psalm 147, praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it pleases him. A song of praise is fitting. Psalm 95, oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of of salvation. Get to that one twice because it's a big, it's a good one. Psalm 104, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I am a being. Well, Psalm 13, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Psalm, uh, excuse me, Hebrews, three, or Hebrews 2, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Psalm 59, but I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love. Romans 15, 9, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name, Matthew 26, 30, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. That's a pretty important time to have sung. Psalm 33, sing a hymn, sing to him, excuse me, 
Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. And, and obviously I could stand up here for hours and read scripture on the importance of God's people singing to God. There's something extra special about music. There's just something extra special about music and about song and about singing together that hits us on a level that we just don't fully comprehend with our minds. And you know that because you've heard a song or you hear a song from time to time that, that makes goosebumps stand up on you, on your arms, and the hairs stand straight up, or you start crying. It just, it's, a, it's an incomprehensible level in which music and song can hit us. It's an important important thing and and I know before we go any further some people are more musically inclined than others some people like music a little more than others but I'm here to tell you right now if you're a human being music matters song matters singing matters to you period and therefore it matters as we come together in the Lord's name in his house singing is a gift that God has given us to do specific things and to and to affect us in specific ways which is what we're going to look at this morning. Maybe we can make that all make sense by the end of the day. So, Ephesians 5, starting verse 15, Pay careful attention then to how you walk, not as, the un, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time, because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God and the, to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in fear of Christ. Amen. So let's dig into that. The first part there, it's not really, really part of what we're looking at today, but it all goes together. It's all one kind of section and paragraph. Pay careful attention then to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise. Making the most of the time. Direct correlation between making the most of our time and being wise. Making the most of the time, because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Be wise. Number your days. Understand your life is short and finite, and that it's not your life. It's all on loan to you. From an infinite God that created you. And he knows that the greatest joy and pleasure you will ever experience in this life is to be sold out to him. A life that forsakes self and serves him and others. Be wise. That's all encompassed there in the previous section Paul's been talking about. And he kind of culminates it right there. Be wise. Number your days. Your life is not your own. And God created you for a purpose. And when you live that purpose out, serving others, serving him, you will experience the fullness of what it is to be a human being. Everything else is a cheap, cheap substitute. Trying to find that same joy in this life. Moving on quickly from that. 18, and don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit. Now, this is not an alcohol-bashing sermon, okay? I don't have to stand up here and, and bash you about how you shouldn't go out and get drunk all the time. No one needs to hear that, I don't think. Everybody's seen the destruction that comes from that. That's not what the point of the message is today. But there's an obvious 
obvious correlation right here between being wise and not living a life of drunkenness. That's obvious that, that what he's doing here. He's, he's segueing that being wise into what he's talking about now, being filled with the Spirit. It's interesting to me how Scripture uses this comparison more than once, this comparison of drunkenness versus being filled with the Spirit. It's kind of, a, it's kind of, a, kind of an odd pairing, really, if you think about it. There must be similarities there then. He's saying don't be, be, be drunk with wine, but be, be filled with the Spirit. There's, 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 there's similarities between the joy of being drunk and the joy of salvation. Now, the problem is, what are you under the control of? Which is exactly the point of what Paul is trying to make here. You may feel temporary joy, temporary release, temporary uh, pain may disappear, and all those types of things, inhibitions and all the things that we think are holding us back from experiencing what this world would give us if we would just give in to all of that. Temporary, but you're under the control of something else. You're under the control of something that, I don't know about you, but I know in previous times in my life, I've woken up and said, wow, I wish I really hadn't done that. Maybe you've never experienced that, and if that's the case, then bless your heart. I'm proud for you, and I'm glad. But that has been the case in my life before. And so he's saying here, really contrasting the, 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 the temporary and fake joy on this side with the real joy that comes from being under the control of the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit. Now, you want to talk about something we could chase a rabbit on for a long time, being filled with the Spirit. You talk about a very contentious doctrinal issue uh, when you get to that point of Scripture. Um, I'm, I'm a language guy. I've told you that before. I'm a language guy. I like language. It makes sense to me, and I like digging into language. There's, there's two different words in the New Testament in Greek used for being filled with the Spirit. The first one is pimplomy. That's the word used when at Pentecost, the apostles are filled with the Spirit, and they do these miraculous things and miraculous signs, and they speak, they speak and other languages come out that other people can understand in their own native tongue. And this, this, there's just miracles that take place when you are filled with the Spirit like this. It's, a, it's really cool it, occurrence. In Scripture, it never happens again after Acts 19. So you can go with that on how I lean in that doctrine. Uh, but the second word is pleurea. Now this word is, unlike the other, the pimplomy, is a word that it happens to you. You don't do anything, it just happens to you. In other words, God just filled them with the Spirit and they did these things. Now this word is imperative passive. Stay with me. I won't go too nerd, nerdy on you, I promise. Stay with me. It's imperative passive. In other words, it's imperative, it's a command, but it's passive. It's something that you choose to take place or not. See, God filled the apostles with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost to accomplish His work. But this filling of the Spirit, this living a life filled with the Spirit, under the control, under the guidance of the Spirit, comes from a saved person deciding to be filled with the Spirit, deciding to be controlled by the Spirit. This is not being filled with the Spirit at salvation. This person has already been saved, Paul is talking to. So, you would first want to be filled with the Spirit for salvation. That's a different feeling than what he's talking about here. This is talking about living out what it is you say you believe. You say you follow Jesus, you say He's your Savior, then live it out. 
Be filled with the Spirit. Be under the control of the Spirit. So this is a command that we have a part to play in. We have, a, we have a, an ability to receive or resist this filling of the Spirit, this living under the control of the Spirit. In other words, it's, a, it's kind of about being what you're governed by. That's the, inf- that's the contrast that Paul's making here. Are you governed by, and he gives the example of drunkenness. Are you governed by alcohol? Does it control your life? Does that, is that how you are governed, and, and is that what makes you go? Or are you governed by the Spirit, controlled like, like law-abiding citizens abide in the law? Okay, Not controlled like joystick controlling you. Are you controlled by the Spirit as, as like when you see a speed limit, and you should, you should drive that speed limit. You should. I should. We should. I, I get it. <laughs> so being filled with the Spirit is, is being yielded to an authority. Okay? It's being yielded to an authority. And this, and this yielding, this filling, this Spirit-led life happens with specific action and causes specific results. And that's the point Paul's trying to make. If you live a spirit-filled life, then you are doing specific things, and that causes specific things to happen in your life when you're living by the Spirit. One of those specific actions, let me skip down to the, to the end of what we looked at today, is giving thanks. A spirit-filled person gives thanks. Giving thanks always for everything. Always for everything. You could, like, circle that if, you're, if you if you don't feel like you're blaspheming your Bible by doing that, circle that, underline that. Giving thanks always for everything. Wow. To God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Yielding to the Spirit allows an eternal mindset that is able to trust and give thanks to God in all, again, underline, circle, all circumstances. If you are filled with the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit, living to please God because you have been saved and reborn and, and regenerated into a new being, and now you are controlled by the Spirit. If you do that, you, you have and should give thanks in all circumstances. Now, that is impossible to do without God. Impossible. I can prove it to you real quick. I can walk up to you and sock you in the gut and see if you can give thanks for that. Now, that's a I won't tell you who I'm thinking of, but anyway, it's not really the point of what he's talking about. It's a very juvenile example on my part, but I felt like having fun a little bit, so <laughs> so we should give thanks. But I skipped over that middle part on purpose, because this is where we're going to camp today for just a few minutes. That middle part there, he says, being filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord. Whenever God's people have gathered, whenever and wherever God's people have gathered throughout history, they have sang. When God's people get together, they sing. Why? For the same reason that you can't get that your drunk idiot uncle to stop singing when he's drunk. <laughs> that's, the, that's the comparison Paul's making, right? Because you just, you're full. You're full of something that you just can't help but it come out. Can't help but it come out. Wherever God's people have gathered, they have sang. Singing is, is as part of the human experience as breathing. 
And he says here, singing in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Psalms in the Greek was, was songs sung to the harp. Psalmos, specifically, was songs sung to the harp. That's what it meant for a psalm, for a psalmos, or psalm, we say. Hymns in the classical Greek was just a festive tune in praise of God or hero. Okay? So in the Greek, it meant you were singing a festive song to God or to a hero in the, in the Greek culture. It, it has evolved in a more modern term to be a song in praise of God with a congregationally singable tune. We have different words for the songs we sing. One of the words we use is hymns. Now, it's a word that gets butchered and misused a lot because we think hymns mean something in that blue book. And it, it is things in those blue book, that blue book, but it's not just that. It's a song sung to God in praise or in a festive manner that is a congregationally singable song. In other words, it, it's, it's got a format. It's probably A-A-B-A, right? You do something similar, then one little, one little chase of one little thing or a chorus or something, and then you come back to that same thing. It's easy to understand. It's easy to follow. It's easy to go with. It's a hymn. That's what a hymn is. A hymn doesn't mean an old song that you don't like. And a hymn doesn't mean an old song that you love. It's neither one of those things. It's not what it is. Now, we may mean it that way when we say it, but it's really not what it is. Singing and music with your, with your heart, he says. With your heart. This is, something, this is something that is inside of us, expressed in a special way, that then in turn affects what's inside of us. It strengthens what's inside of us. That's what happens when we sing. We're expressing something in a, in a special way. What do I mean special? Well, it's different to say something and to sing it. It's a different thing. It's a different effect that it has on us. It's a different effect that it has on a group. If I started busting out in song right now, which I'm not going to do, but if I did, it wouldn't take long if it was a song you liked and a song you knew for you to start singing with me. But if I were just saying it, you wouldn't, you wouldn't sit out there and say it with me, but you'd sing it with me because it's different. Singing is different. It has a different effect and a different intended effect. It's on purpose. <laughs> God has given us this. And here is where the church, this subject, is where the church, if not careful, can become most divided. Because it is something so important. And it is something that has such a special effect on us as human beings. And if not careful, any church, this church or any church, can become very divided over something that's intended to bring us together like nothing else can. And I think that's part of the reason why Satan attacks in this area. Because he knows if he can get you divided in this area, well, there ain't nothing he can't get you divided over. But if we come together in this area, then there's hardly anything that could ever bring us apart. And this is where we have a rub all throughout church history. Just, just 15, 20 years ago, it was called the Worship Wars. It happened all over, everywhere in the American church. We were a little late getting to it, but we went through it too. And I feel like we're kind of past it. But it's not any, one of those things that you're ever fully past because it's not an area that Satan ever stops attacking in, ever, I don't think. That's my personal opinion. That's not scripturally based. That's just my opinion. I think Satan attacks in this area. So here's some, some hymn history for us. Yeah, I love it, all right? Here's some hymn history for us that will hopefully, you know, y'all know I get just geeked up about this stuff. I'm sorry, I'm such a nerd hopefully broaden our perspective and increase our empathy. 
That's what I hope. For here to the end of the sermon, that it broadens our perspective and increases our empathy together. So, here's some famous hymns and when they were written. Now, think about these years as I say them. What a friend we have in Jesus, 1868. Crown him with many crowns, 1852. How firm a foundation, not a very famous one around here, but still a very famous hymn. 1787, a mighty fortress is our God. 1529, one of my favorite hymns. I think it's one of the most manly hymns ever written. I love that song. It was written by Martin Luther during the Reformation, 1529. Jesus paid it all, 1865. When I surveyed the wondrous cross by the great Isaac Watts, 1707. Blessed assurance by the none other and incomparable Fanny Crosby, 1873. Doxology, the doxology, the tune and the thing to the doxology, 1674. Now think about that. The church existed for 1,600 years without the doxology. Seems impossible. All Creatures of Our God and King, one of my favorites. All Sons and Daughters did a, did a remake of that a few years ago that was just oh, so good. 1225. Whew. Be Thou My Vision. I know somebody that likes this one, and I agree with her. The sixth century. Now, we talked last week about how cool it is that our faith connects us together, but also connects us to the saints of, of the past years, right? Think about that when you're singing Be Thou My Vision, and a song written in Ireland in the fifth century. You're connected to Christians that have sang that for 1,500 years what they were going through then, what they were dealing with then. Amazing. It's amazing to sing songs like that and think about what must those people, that person that wrote that, what must they have been going through at that point in time? Because I can guarantee you this, throughout human history, life's never been easy. So they were going through something. We have different things now, but they had things that were hard back then too. Trust me, if you don't think life was hard or harder, 50, 60, 70 years ago, then just find somebody with white hair or no hair, not always no hair, but usually white hair, and ask them about what their life was like when they were younger. I promise you, you'll get an education. It is well, it is well. Horatio Spafford, 1873. How great thou art, 1885. Now, that means we've only had that song for about 150 years. We've only had that song for about 150 years. How great thou art. Some of your favorite. I know some of you. It's your favorite. The first 1,800 years of the church, the church met and didn't sing that song and made it. (laughs) Again, I mean, sometimes we're not sure how, but they did. They did. They did. And there's examples of hymns all throughout the New Testament. I like, that's one reason I love the, the, the Holman Christian Standard Bible is because it takes those things and it, and it, and it kind of parenthesizes them. It puts them out in paragraph form so you know that, that we're pretty sure that this was a hymn, right? It takes it out and kind of separates it like it looks in a songbook. They sang new hymns, the apostles did. <laughs> I wonder what the, some of the Israelites thought about. What is this new, what is this? I bet they're, it's not the way David, that's not the way David sang it thousand years ago we ought to do it like the way David sang it I bet somebody I I guarantee you somebody said that (laughs) now about this one right amazing grace amazing grace 
I, I agree with Chris Tomlin, probably the greatest song ever written. Amazing Grace, 1779. Amazing. Now, I told you we'd bring some things back to you that we learned in Nashville. A couple weeks ago, ja Josh and I went to Nashville, and Chris Tomlin actually told the story of where this song came from. It was crazy. I couldn't believe it. I'll be honest with you, I kind of fell on, in the camp that he describes when he tells the story. You'll see what camp that is maybe a little bit in a minute. But <clears throat> He's there, and he's talking in person with, to all of us at the arena, and he says, uh, Keith Yeti asked him, he said, can you tell us the story about that song? Now, for those of you that don't know, Chris Tomlin is the guy that wrote Amazing Grace, My Chains Are Gone. So to some of you, he's a guy that wrote an amazing song. And to some of you, he's the punk that messed up the greatest song ever written. <laughs> he talked about learning something that night, right? So he tells a story. He says, tell us the story where that came from. He said, sure. So I was on a flight back from a show, and there happened to be a guy that was a friend of mine on that flight also. And we just kind of came in and out of each other's lives at different times, and he just happened to be on that flight. And so we started talking. And he said, man, it's crazy that I'm on this flight with you at the same time because I was, he's working in Hollywood trying to produce a movie, and he was just talking to some guys a couple of days before about this movie and that they needed to talk to Chris Tomlin. And Chris said that he said, well, do you want me to star in the movie? And his friend was like, no. Don't want you to star in the movie. He's like, okay, I thought you might want me to star in the movie. He said, no, it's, it's a story about William Wilberforce. Some of you may know who that is. Some of you may not. Story about William Wilberforce, and the name of the movie is Amazing Grace. And we want you to take Amazing Grace and kind of change it up a little in a way that would fit this story so we can use it for this movie. And Chris Tomlin was like, not a chance. No. He's like, what do you mean? <laughs> How do you mean? No. He said, there's no way I'm going to be known as the punk that messed up the greatest song ever written. His words, Chris Tomlin's exact words. He says, no way I'm going to be that guy. I'm not going to be that guy. The song is amazing. I'm not messing with it. And the guy said, well, you don't know William Wilberforce's story, do you? He said, no, I don't, I don't know who he is. He said, well, how about this? You go home. You learn who he is. You learn about what took place. You learn about what we're, the story we're telling in this movie. You learn about John Newton, who was friends with William Wilberforce, who wrote this song, Amazing Grace. Go learn about that, and then call me back, and, and maybe, maybe you'll see it differently. So he did. He went home, and he started looking at this story and this guy and this song. And William Wilberforce was, was the leading guy in the British Parliament that helped get the Slave Act of 1807 passed, which which ended the slave trade in the British Empire. First law in the world to do that. And John Newton was friends with and an encourager of this guy. John Newton, the guy that wrote Amazing Grace, had, had grown into a very strong abolitionist late in his life and was fighting hard to get slavery uh, made illegal all throughout the Western world. And so, so that's what this movie was about. So then Chris Thomas starts digging into the history of the song and John Newton and what took place and all these types of things. And for those of you who don't know, John Newton was quite the scoundrel early in his life. Not a very good dude. Lost his mom when he was seven years old, as can be lots of times when something like that happens. Even though she taught him scripture and how to live and what to do, he diverged down a, a, a bad road. 
was a, was a captain uh, on, on slave trading trips, making trips from, from Britain to Africa and back, invested in companies that profited off of the slave trade for decades, even after being a Christian. <laughs> but that eventually changed because the Spirit was working on him. And through all of that, he was such a bad guy that his crew one time, he fell over, he was drunk, <laughs> interestingly enough, he was drunk and fell over, board at his ship, and instead of lowering the boat to go out there and get him, they literally got a well harpoon and threw it out there, and it stuck in his hip, and they drug him back in the boat with a well harpoon like they would a whale that they were fishing. And John Newton walked with a limp for the rest of his life because of that. And he said that it was the greatest reminder of God's grace that he had. Every time he limped, he remembered who he was, now who he wasn't because of God's grace. And so through all of that and a life like that and, 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 a, and a past kind of like Paul that he was very, very, very ashamed of, through all that is how he came to write this song, Amazing Grace. And then something changed for Chris. All of that. He was looking for, in the verses, the last verse. When we've been there 10,000 years. He couldn't find it. He couldn't find it in John Newton's writings. Because John Newton didn't write it. It was anonymously added years later. <laughs> Probably one of your favorite verses. And it wasn't even in the original song. It was added later. And put in the Baptist hymnal in 1829. And then popularized because of Uncle Tom's Cabin, the book written in the 1850s. And then it just kind of stuck after that. That book was huge. I don't know if you know that or not, but that was a huge book. Changed America, honestly. And so it's been there ever since, but it wasn't in the original song. Aren't you glad somebody added that to that song? I'm sure glad. I love that verse. And it hit Chris. He said, well, some punk already changed this song, so I won't be the first one to do it. And so he felt a freedom, and he said he sat down and within minutes wrote the chorus. He said, sometimes you write a song, sometimes you receive a song. He said, I sat down, and God just gave me that chorus. And it, and it, and it encompasses the freedom we get because of God's grace, but also, obviously, because of what the story was talking about, it talks about the freedom humans felt being released from the bondage of slavery. What an amazing story. And he said he, didn't, he wasn't sure of the impact until not too long after the song came out and the movie came out. He got an email from a pastor that had just done the funeral for a little old 90-year-old lady in his church, and she wrote out her description of her funeral, as people tend to do, especially as they get older in life. And she said, I want sung at my funeral, amazing grace, catch this, but not the normal one. I want the one all the kids are singing. I want the one all the kids are singing. Now that's a lady that got it. That's a lady that got it. She understood it. She, she understood the power of music and how that can help us empathize with each other. So here's what I'm saying, and I'm done. Maybe, just maybe, the next time we sing an old hymn, maybe you should sing it as loud as you can sing it from a joyful heart that you didn't know you had, because maybe that will be what somebody needs to hear in this church that that song means the world to, and you have no idea why. You have no idea why that song speaks to them because of something that happened to them in their life. 
And maybe you can join in in helping their joy increase. Or maybe the next time we sing a brand new song to you, maybe you could sing it as loud as you can sing it, even though you barely know it from a joyful heart that you didn't know you had. Because maybe you joining in in that song, maybe it speaks to a young couple in this church that's just trying to figure out how to make ends meet and raise kids and is on the brink of just, that's it. And maybe that morning you can help them have a little more hope to make it through the week that is to come. Maybe, just maybe, when we come together, church, and we sing to the God of creation, maybe it's a little bit more than just about you or me. Maybe it's about all of us more than we ever could possibly realize. And maybe that's why God gave it to us as the gift that he gave it to us, because he knew the power of singing together to him and about him. He knows what it can do. If you want to sum it up in one sentence, there it is. The church will prevail even more when we sing together with a God-centered heart, a desire to please him and not ourselves. Christians have always done it. Paul and Silas Jesus and the apostles, martyrs, slaves in bondage, and so on and so on. Christians have always found a way to sing together, and so must we. So must we. Lord, I come to you today, and I just thank you, and I love you for your overwhelming wisdom, God. And I pray that we would, we would never, Lord, allow our personal preferences or our personal circumstances to deter our corporate worship together. It's bigger than that, God. It's bigger than that. It's bigger than me, and it's bigger than any individual. It's God-sized. Lord, may we, may we gather together and worship from that mindset and from that heart. It's God-sized what we get to do together. God, we thank you for, for Jesus and the price that was paid so that we can worship you and commune and have a relationship with you, God, instead of a checklist of dead religious rules that we think we need to do to reach you. God, you reached down and grabbed us. God, thank you for that. And if someone's here this morning that's never placed their faith in you, they've never given over to submitting their life to you, repented from sin and said, I need you, may today be that day, God. May it be during this time. But if there's anything else going on, God, may we, may we worship you in prayer, in song, and however led during this time, whatever the, the needs may be, God, may we do it during this time together. We thank you and love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand?